Yemen today stands on a precipice. On the humanitarian side, the situation is desperate. We must do all we can to prevent the already dire conditions from deteriorating into the worst famine we have seen in decades. But on the political side, there are signs of hope, and we must do all we can to maximize the chances for success. The international community has a real opportunity to halt the senseless cycle of violence and to prevent an imminent catastrophe. And the time to act is now. This is Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to the TCF World Podcast, episode 23. Uh, we're joined today by Gregory Johnson, a Yemen expert who served on the UN Yemen panel from 2016 to 2018, and senior fellow Michael Wahid Hanna. Gregory, thanks so much for coming to talk to us here at our office in New York. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. You've been following Yemen for years and years, long long before most people were paying the slightest attention. Uh, I'm curious, why suddenly, three years into this war that's been such a catastrophe, why suddenly this fall uh, has Yemen become uh, an issue of political significance? So I think there are a few different strands to that answer. One is that I think Congress has started paying attention um, for the first time. So the war started when President Obama was there. It wasn't something the Obama administration really wanted to get into, but they were willing to go along with the Saudis. The Saudis said, we're going to, we're going to start this war and it'll take about six weeks. And that was back in, in March of 2015. Obviously, we're well past that. So I think Congress has got a little bit um, tired of what's happening. I think also there's been more news reporting on it lately than there has been previously, and particularly with regard to the humanitarian situation and the famine in Yemen. And so you're seeing just, when you look at the pictures, I know the New York Times has done some stuff on this, um, you look at the emaciated bodies of these young boys and girls and women and children, and it's just, it, it's incredibly heart-wrenching. And so people are starting to um, to pay but, attention to but, it. But I feel like that information has been out there in, in drips and drabs for several years now, right? The, the, the historic dimensions of the famine, the, first the cholera, then the famine, right. and, and there have been pictures of starving children going back several years, I think. Uh, uh, so what is it now that's, I mean, is it that it's worse? Is it that there are images that didn't exist? Or is, it, is there some other reason why there's, there's some political interest in making hay of this that didn't exist. Yeah, so I think, so the third reason of, of what I was going to say, so I think there's more of the pictures that, that we hadn't seen previously. There's more journalists getting in. So in, in the early days of the war, the Saudis had a pretty tight lock on the country. And if you're a journalist, and, and at, uh, before I joined the UN panel, I tried to get into Yemen as a journalist, and it was just, it was impossible. Some, um, Iona Craig, who's a British journalist, has been able to get in. But more recently, Robert Worth from the New York Times Magazine got in. There's just more coverage than there was. Some of that is a result of when the war started, Syria was still ongoing, the war against ISIS was still ongoing. So if you're a newspaper editor, that's where a lot of your Middle East coverage is going. Now it's it's more toward Yemen. And the third, um, the third of the three strands that I mentioned, so first Congress paying more attention, then more media coverage. And I think the third thing is what happened recently with Jamal Khashoggi, 
where a journalist was was murdered in a consulate in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The person responsible for that, or the person most people believe responsible for that, is Mohammed bin Salman. He's also responsible for for the war in Yemen. He was the defense minister who decided to to launch what the Saudis at the time called Operation Decisive Storm. And so these three things coming together, I think, has led to an increased awareness of Yemen. Plus. In Yemen, we're really at a point where I think we're almost at a point of no return. That is, the country is so bad, and there's a worry that it may never be able to be put back together. And so many people are going to to die, really, in preventable um, preventable deaths. Well, give us. Uh, I, I feel like it's it's worth doing this every time the issue of Yemen comes up. Give us the the quick read on what the toll of this war has been for for Yemen. Uh, as far as casualties. The, the humanitarian, and if you want, throw in the political and strategic. Uh, right, so, well. yeah. So people know why this is important. Right, so Yemen, for a long time, the death toll in Yemen was stuck at 10,000, and that's been a misleading number because there's far more. I think the most accurate estimates probably are a lot closer to 50,000 deaths since the beginning of the war than they are to 10,000. The U.S., excuse me, the U.N. official estimate is about 16,000. Um, so what's happened is just to give you sort of a brief a brief summary of, of how this how this started. So 2011 we have the Arab Spring. Ali Abdullah Saleh is forced to step down. He finally does in 2012 in February 2012. For about two years, his his vice president, a guy named Abdul Rabu Mansour Hadi, takes over and is pretty inefficient. Is unable to work. The country's really broken and fragmented. The military is fragmented up in the north. The Houthis have taken over their home government of Sada and have really essentially created a de facto state. And in the summer of 2014, the Houthis moved down, um, going down from the mountains out of Sada, down toward the capital of Sana'a, where they strike a deal with Ali Abdullah Saleh, who's a private citizen. Saleh is trying to use them to fight his domestic enemies in, in the capital city of Sana'a. They're trying to use Saleh to take over. In September of 2014, they take over the city, put the sitting president under house arrest. He later escapes, makes his way to Saudi Arabia, asks for outside intervention. And then in March of 2015, the Saudis start this um, bombing campaign, which they they don't want to put ground troops in because the Saudi army is not particularly good. Um, But they think that they can reduce or at least cause enough pain to the Houthis via airstrikes that the Houthis will um, retreat from the city and be weakened and they can reinstall President Hadi. That was the idea that they sold to the Obama administration that this will take about six weeks to do. I think anybody who looked at it um, would have been very skeptical of that and of course now we're um, approaching four years and there's been no real change. So the Saudis basically now have have sort of three options. They can keep doing what they've been doing for the past nearly four years and hope that something changes. They can withdraw completely and let the Houthis declare victory or they can double down and insert ground troops in the hopes that this will do something. But inserting ground troops obviously will lead you to a bloody and long guerrilla war with no guarantee of victory. So I mean, one of the things that, that you've written about um, recently and I think was, is quite useful is a description of all the wars, multiple, that are um, happening at, you know, in parallel uh, and the theaters are very fragmented. I mean, even the, the Saudi war in Yemen is quite different than the Emirati war in right. Yemen. So maybe just to kind of 
quick description of, sure. of the, the kind of different varieties of conflict because it is a fragmented battlefield? I think that's a great question. I have talked about Yemen as being three separate but overlapping wars. So if you want to think about it this way, the first war would be the U.S.-led war against Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And this is really the longest running war. So the USS Cole attack happened back in, in 2000, obviously then September 11, 2001. This is a war that's been continuing since that time. And just to give you a sense of the scale, in 2016, the last year of the Obama administration, the U.S. carried out uh, about 35, 36 drone strikes. Then in 2017, the first year of the Trump administration, the U.S. carried out over 130 drone strikes. So that's a massive increase in what the U.S. is doing against al-Qaeda. Now this year we've seen the numbers reduced a little bit and they're back to about 38 or so drone strikes so far for 2018. So that's one war. That's the longest running war. The second war is what I call the regional war. So this is the Saudi Arabia and large, largely it's Saudi Arabia and the UAE against what they see as an Iranian proxy. And the, what they mean by an Iranian proxy is the Houthis. Personally, I don't, I don't think the Houthis are a proxy group of Iran. I think the Houthis certainly get support from Iran, um, but I, I would uh, classify it much more as an alliance um, between the Houthis and Iran than any sort of Tehran doesn't exercise command and control. In fact, I think there are a number of, um, a number of examples that would point to Iran actually wanting the Houthis to do one thing and the Houthis doing something else. But that's, that's the regional war. So Saudi Arabia and the UAE are hitting the Houthis as a way of weakening Iran. Then the third and really the the most intractable and I think the most difficult conflict to solve is the Yemeni civil war. And it's most difficult because there are so many different actors and there's there are basically a number of different groups with guns. And none of these groups are strong enough to impose their will upon everyone else, but all of them have enough power and enough guys with guns that they can act as spoilers. So this is the war that, as someone who cares a lot about Yemen, who spends a lot of time looking at Yemen, this is the war that really concerns me because the UN Special Envoy, who I'm sure we'll talk about, he could potentially end the Saudi and UAE and the regional war, but there's really no way to end this war, and I don't think, I think Yemen has a Humpty Dumpty problem, that is, it's broken, and I don't think anybody's going to be able to put it back together again. So those are the three wars that are all happening simultaneously, and in some way or another bleeding into one another. And the humanitarian impact of that has been catastrophic in, in terms of dead and wounded and sick uh, and lives disrupted. And the strategic consequences, I think, have also been very significant and, and I think are part, are, are part of the key to dispelling the argument that somehow, supposedly, the U.S. or its allies are getting something out of this war. Um, and, and I'm curious if, if, the, if how you come down on this. I mean, have al-Qaeda... Has al-Qaeda thrived as a result of this war, and have the Houthis become much closer to Iran than they ever were before as a result of a war supposedly designed to, to punish them for being closer than they were, in fact, ever? Yeah, I, th I think that's a great point, and I think in, in many ways Saudi launched this war in 2015 because they were worried that the Houthis would become in some way Hezbollah South, that is, a group like Hezbollah on their southern border. But what we've seen is they've really created a self-fulfilling prophecy. That is, the longer this war goes on, the deeper the what I would call the alliance between the Houthis and Iran becomes. So 
you know, if you go back to, say, 2008, 2009, when the Houthis are fighting the central government of then Ali Abdullah Saleh, there's really no evidence. And some of the WikiLeaks cables from the U.S. Embassy in Sana'a um, say this as well. There's no evidence of Iranian support to the Houthis. It's only when Saudi Arabia got involved in fighting the Houthis in 2009 and then after the Arab Spring in 2011 and then primarily after Saudi Arabia started this air campaign in, in 2015, that the Houthis and Iran have really tightened that alliance. Um, as, as to the, the question about Al-Qaeda, it's an interesting one. When the war started, I, like a lot of people, thought oh, this war is going to be a boon for Al-Qaeda. This is going to be something that, you know, Al-Qaeda thrives in chaos, they thrive on war and destruction, they can bring in recruits. And what we've seen is that really hasn't happened. And in fact, I think there's a couple of different things going on. So Al-Qaeda has gotten bigger in terms of Yemen because of this war. So the UN um, committee that looks at counterterrorism, that looks at Al-Qaeda and ISIS, put out a report this summer that estimated Al-Qaeda's AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, their strength's about 6,000, 7,000 people. Um, but I think one of the things that's important to remember is most of those 6,000 to 7,000 people are Yemenis. So Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is no longer attracting the top of high-level international recruits that it once did. Those recruits are either going off to, to they were, say, in 2014 or 2015, going and joining ISIS, or the ones that are left in Yemen have um, really been decimated both by the drone strikes as well as by fighting against the Houthis or fighting the Emiratis. One of the things that's interesting, because we have these three separate overlapping wars, is that Al-Qaeda is basically fighting all sides. They're fighting the Yemeni government, they're fighting the Houthis, they're fighting the Saudis, fighting the Emiratis, they're, they're fighting everybody. And so Al-Qaeda's domestic insurgency wing has gotten a lot stronger. Its international terrorist wing has gotten a lot weaker. But the worry that I have, and I think the worry that a lot of people have, is that if this war continues, and if that domestic insurgency wing continues to get stronger, then at some point in the future, AQAP could once again, that, that wing could basically reinvigorate and resurrect the international terrorist side of the organization. The longer term solution, and by longer term, I mean 30 days from now, we want to see everybody around a peace table based on a ceasefire, based on a pullback from the border, and then based on ceasing dropping of bombs that will permit the special envoy, Martin Griffiths, he's very good, he knows what he's doing, uh, to get them together in Sweden and end this war. That is the only way we're going to really solve this. In terms of, I mean, there's, there's now um, discussion of an active UN mediation role um, and you just mentioned that you could imagine a, a way in which the, the regional war comes to you know, a potentially a halt. Um, you know, assuming there is not outside uh, pressure from the United States or others, um, you know, one of the big issues is that there's no, there's no mechanism for face-saving exit. Right. The military situation is inconclusive. Uh, there's no mechanism for a face-saving exit. You know, what does that look like? I mean, how, how can the Emiratis and the Saudis, um, if they were so inclined or the pressure was put upon them, 
what does that look like for them to extricate themselves from from the conflict? That's a that's a good question, and there's a there's a lot there. So I think what the Saudis and the Emiratis are doing in Yemen are two separate things. Even though I would say at the executive level, the Saudis and the Emiratis talk as if they're on the same page. So Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed in in the UAE, they they think they're operating. They they basically have this one plan for Yemen and they talk and they agree to it. But on the ground, their militaries are doing something entirely different. I think the Saudis are mostly concerned with preventing the Houthis from becoming Hezbollah South. And I think in this way, the Saudis have in some way bought into their own rhetoric on this. And then the Emiratis are doing something that is less Yemen specific, but has more to do with what the Emiratis are trying to do throughout the Red Sea in some of the ports that they that they now have, some of the military bases that they have in the Horn of Africa. And the Emiratis have been very active in creating basically proxy military forces on the ground. So military forces that are equipped, that are trained, that are paid for by the UAE, and of course then owe their loyalty to the UAE, but are operating outside of the command and control of the Yemeni government. Um, so when when we talk about a face-saving exit for for either the Saudis or the Emiratis, I think that's what, if you listen to the Saudis, one of the things they say they're trying to do now when they're going into Hudaydah, which is this re, uh, port city on the Red Sea, this is an offensive that has sort of waxed and waned over time, but it's it's now picking, back spe picking up speed again. The Saudis seem to think that if if they can take this port city where about 70 to 80 percent of the aid comes through, which makes it very important for the humanitarian um, side of the equation, if they can take this, then that might be the face-saving military victory that they could sort of wash their hands of, of Yemen and, and be done. What that assumption doesn't take into account, however, is whether the Houthis would then be willing to sit down and negotiate. Because I think at the moment, neither neither side wants to lose diplomatically what they think they can gain militarily. Researchers at the Century Foundation have been exploring ways to peacefully resolve the conflict in Yemen. Reports explore the pernicious humanitarian and strategic consequences of the war there and America's complicity and leverage to help resolve the conflict. To read more, go to the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, and search for Yemen. The timing of this Hudaydah offensive seems coming after Pompeo's announcement of, of first, I guess, a one-month, uh, right. so a ceasefire within a month, and then the sort of by the end of the year. It seemed like the stage was being set for let the U.S.'s allies take Hudaydah and then try and force through... through um, through a settlement, and uh, you just raised one objection to that. The other is, can it even be done? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a really good question, and and I think we should get to the U.S. role because I think the U.S. role is 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 really important in in Yemen. But on taking Hudaydah, so basically, Hudaydah. Think of it as there's three objectives basically. There's the Hudaydah airport, which is just south of the city. There's the city itself, which is about 500, 600,000 people, so a pretty big urban terrain. And then there's the port of Hudaydah, which is just north of the city. And so in order to take this, it's been unclear whether the coalition wants to take all of it or if it just wants to take the airport and the seaport but not try to take um, the city itself. I think right now we're seeing that the coalition is basically 
because it's so difficult to take an urban terrain of 600,000 people where you have fighters mixed in with civilians, obviously there's a lot of attention on this. When I was on the, um, the UN panel of experts at, at the Security Council in November of 2017, Saudi and the Emiratis said that they were going to go into Hudaydah and we did a study and sent it to the Security Council about what the humanitarian costs of this would be and they were going to be staggering because it's not just the people in Hudaydah. If you disrupt the port in the port in Hudaydah, none of that 70 to 80 percent of the food that's going into the rest of the country can get in. And when you have so many people who the World Food Program estimates that at least 8 million Yemenis are on the brink of starvation. So if you disrupt that port, even for a couple of days, then that can disrupt food distribution and medicine distribution for a matter of weeks. So whatever's getting through already is woefully inadequate if right. 8 million people are on the brink of starvation. Yeah, and there's 18 million in a country of about 26, 27 million, 18 million that are, that are food insecure. And so both sides are guilty of this. So the Saudis are not letting a lot of essential things wheat. They're not letting all the medicine through. They have this basically a blockade that prevents a lot of this coming through. And then the Houthis are playing their own game. So when this stuff comes through, the Houthis are taxing it, and that's how they're making some of their money. So basically 30% of the Houthis' annual budget, or at least what we estimated was 30% of their budget, comes from taxing the goods that are coming into Hudaydah. So you have a situation where the people who are paying the price for this war between Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis, and the Houthis are not the political leadership in Saudi, it's not the political leadership in the Emirates, and it's not the Houthi leadership, it's the civilians in Yemen. I saw the bomb hit the bus. It blew it into those shops and threw bodies clear to the other side of those buildings. We found bodies scattered everywhere. There was a severed head inside the bomb crater. So what's the U.S. Uh, role in this? The U.S. has really tried to have it both ways when it comes to this. So first I would say the U.S. doesn't really have a Yemen policy. What the U.S. has is a Saudi policy. And Yemen is basically an outgrowth of the Saudi policy and U.S. counterterrorism policy. So we, we started talking about that this war started under the Obama administration. In fact, Saudi Arabia announced the beginning of the war from Washington, which is not an accident. They didn't announce it from Riyadh. They announced it from Washington. And basically, Saudi Arabia came to the Obama administration and said, and the Obama administration um, went along with the Saudi idea that, look, the Houthis have taken over. The Houthis are aligned with Iran. We need to go in and get them out. And the Obama administration, because they needed Saudi support on the Iran nuclear deal, they basically sort of held their nose and, and went along with it. But the U.S. has said all throughout this that they're not a party to the conflict. That is, that the U.S. would provide refueling to Saudi and Emirati jets, probably more Emirati jets just based on the map. They, they need refueling more than the Saudis do. Um, that they would provide some logistical support, and they would also provide some intelligence um, and, and in fact, at the beginning, they set up a, a joint intelligence cell in, in Riyadh. But the U.S. has been very clear, and we had a number of discussions with um, the U.S. mission at the U.N., both under the Obama administration as well as under the Trump administration, because as a, as a panel, one of the things that we were trying to decide is whether or not the U.S. was a party to the conflict. So if the U.S. is a party to the conflict, that, that changes things. Obviously, there's no congressional, explicit congressional authorization for U.S. troops to be, to be in Yemen, to be providing this sort of support. The U.S. has always pushed back on that interpretation and said, 
look, we're not a party to the conflict. What we're doing is supporting an ally, but our support doesn't come up to meet the threshold that we would be an active participant. We see those governments and the coalition taking steps and listening to the concerns of the U.S. government. Those concerns have been expressed on the part of Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Mattis, and I would imagine others uh, in, in high positions within the U.S. government. We see them taking steps. Is it perfect? No, absolutely not. Do we see them doing uh, what they can to mitigate uh, civilian casualties? Absolutely we do. That's something uh, that the U.S. government takes very seriously, as you hear the Pentagon speak about that with regard to its own actions that it takes around the world, doing everything that it can to mitigate uh, civilian casualties. So the Secretary made his determination and sent that information up to Capitol Hills. That's basically the U.S. straddling the fence, trying to please the Saudis and their Emirati allies. And the U.S. needs the Saudis and the Emiratis when it comes to counterterrorism. So we mentioned in the first of the three wars that the U.S. was fighting against al-Qaeda and ISIS. The U.S. goes on partnered raids. In fact, the first raid, if you'll remember, under the Trump administration was a raid that took place in Yemen. It was a joint raid between the U.S. and the Emiratis in which a, a U.S. Special Forces soldier, uh, Ryan Owens, I believe, was was killed. And so the U.S. cooperates quite closely with Saudi and the Emiratis against al-Qaeda and ISIS. And so the U.S. is trying to provide some support to the Saudis and Emiratis against the Houthis. But they're trying to do it at such a distance that they don't get tagged with any of the gross violations that the Saudis are making when it comes to dropping U.S.-made bombs that then that then kill civilians. Well, so if, if the U.S. is providing targeting intelligence and the U.S. is providing the bombs and the U.S. is providing the gas in the planes that drop the bombs and then these bombs are killing tens of thousands of civilians, what is the U.S. Uh, uh, culpability, and I'm curious, legally as well as morally and politically? So what we know is that not every, in order to prove U.S. culpability, you would have to know which flights the U.S. refueled and what those flights then went on to do. So if there's a jet, a Saudi jet, say, for, for the sake of argument, the U.S. refuels the jet, jet flies into Saada, it drops a bomb, the bomb hits a school bus carrying 41 children, for example. Then the U.S. If that then the U.S. would be guilty of that. But the U.S. as General Votel, the head of CENTCOM, has said on a number of different occasions, the U.S. doesn't track which flights it refuels. So the U.S. is unable to provide that information. So in the same way that the U.S. has stopped counting civilian debt in its own air wars as a way of getting around uh, culpability for collateral damage and civilians dead. Yeah, if you don't, if, you don't map the problem, you don't track it, so, so no one else can prove that you were guilty of it. Yeah, and I guess that works as a dodge. That works so legally that gets the U.S. off the hook. Yeah, legally there's so you, so for instance, our panel um, and I think all UN panels have this very high levels of evidentiary proof. So because we can't say the U.S. refueled this flight, this flight then went to this target, dropped this bomb that killed this many civilians. Because we don't have that, that map or that track, then we can't, um, we can't prove that the U.S. is actually indispensable to, to that particular bombing raid or is culpable in that, so, in the deaths of those civilians. So if the U.S. were to choose or be forced by politics to, to reduce or, I mean, sorry, to end its support right. for, for this military campaign, would... Would the military campaign continue the same way it is? Will the Saudi, would the Saudis and the Emiratis be able to kill 
the same way they've been, uh, and it would just be sort of morally satisfying for America to no longer be complicit, but the result would be just as bad? That's a great question, and it's an unknowable, because this basically gets down to what leverage does the U.S. have. So if you look at, or if you listen to someone like uh, Bruce Rydell, who's a Brookings, former CIA official, he says that if the U.S. were to cut off its support for Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Air Force would essentially be grounded. It could be grounded tomorrow if the U.S. didn't provide spare parts, didn't do all of these things. How accurate that is, I don't know. My sense politically is that if the U.S. were to cut off all of its support, that the Saudis and the Emiratis would continue to fight and that it would be morally satisfying but that it might not bring about that much of a change on the ground. But that's that's a hypothesis that hasn't been tested. The administration, the Trump administration on its own, is not going to test whether or not it has sufficient leverage to bring this war to an end. It's only going to be Congress that forces the administration to, to act to see if the U.S. actually has that leverage. And we should also be clear, if the regional war, if the Saudi Arabia, if Saudi and the Emiratis withdraw, the fighting on the ground in Yemen is in all likelihood going to continue and in some ways may actually get get quite worse unless the U.S. and the international community has both the bandwidth and the attention and the money that's willing to pay close attention and, and really shepherd this peace process through. Well, so, I mean, to, to, to go to the, to the civil war, the sort right. of heart of the, of the conflict, um, what, what does that look like? I mean... Uh, I mean, the Houthis so far have not shown any predilection for wanting to put, uh, you know, Yemeni politics uh, on the table, uh, and they're quite intransigent about uh, uh, about negotiations. Um, there's the issues of the South. I mean, there is a lot. I mean, right. I, I you know I work on the Middle East, but Yemeni politics is a kind of is sui generis in a lot of ways, right. and it is. Um, it's very complicated to be glib, but um, in fact, it is very complicated. Uh, but what does that what does that look like? I mean, what 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 could one imagine? Whether it is, uh, you know, decentralization or mm -hmm. power sharing or, uh, you know, federalism. Right. What is it that one could imagine that that could satisfy these? Um, warring uh, constituencies. Yemen has been down this road before and not that long ago. So in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, there was this idea of having this great national dialogue where we'll bring representatives of all these different parties, we'll sit together in the move and pick this big hotel in Sana'a in the capital, and we'll all hash out our differences and we'll come to some sort of equitable sharing uh, arrangement. The problem with that is when you don't have any dominant party, that anybody who feels dissatisfied with the agreement can then take up arms and basically spoil the agreement, which is essentially what the Houthis did, because they were part of the national dialogue, decided they didn't really like it, and um, and one thing led to another. They take over the state, and then the Saudis get involved, and then, then we're back where we are. So you have a situation in Yemen, and, and this often happens, right? Like the idea in conflict resolution a lot of times is to come together, have some sort of reconciliation, have some sort of shared government, then eventually move to elections. But of course, moving to elections means that you're also now your political competitors once again. And so the temptation is if you just had arms a few years ago, the temptation is to pick them up once once more. Um, in Yemen, I think you're, you're 
right on the button, Michael, when you talk about how complicated and how many different groups that there are. And the deeper down you go, the more groups and subgroups you, you find. So broadly speaking, you have the Houthis who are in the north, in the, in the mountains, sort of the northern highland. And I think personally the Houthis probably have a little bit more territory right now than they'd be able to hold if the Saudis weren't buying, uh, weren't bombing Yemen. Excuse me. So one of the things that's interesting is the Houthis are not very good at governance. They're you know not not surprising, but they're not very good at governance. But they largely get a buy on this or a pass on this because the Saudis are are carrying out so many different bombing raids. Then besides the Houthis, you have the uh, a group that wants to secede in the south. You have the legitimate government, which basically only exists on paper and which is largely in exile. You have the vice president, who, while part of the um, legitimate government, is his own separate entity. You have all the UAE proxy forces who are Yemenis themselves, so they're not leaving. And the UAE, I would doubt that they're going to cut off funding and training and supplies to, the, to these groups. Um, and so you just have so many different different actors and so many different, as I said earlier, groups with guns that it's hard to imagine a scenario that they all come back together and all play nice together. So then we're looking at, you know, whether it's federalism or decentralization, but that all of those are sort of predicated on people agreeing to the rules of the game, and they're all predicated on people being satisfied with their allotment and not looking over the fence and wanting a little bit more for the next guy who maybe we think we could best him. So short of peace and a political settlement, what's the path to ending famine and, and epidemic? Well, I think the first thing that, that has to be done is there has to be an end to the regional war. That's the war that's easiest to end. It's not easy to end, but of the three, it's the easiest to end. But it's not going to be done by the UN alone or by the special envoy alone. It's going to require um, significant U.S. pressure on Saudi Arabia and on the UAE. And I think there are ways that the U.S. can do this short of just cutting off all um, supply or all spare parts to the Saudi Air Force. That is, the U.S. can slowly ratchet up pressure and help the Saudis to, to get out. Once that happens and the Saudis lift the blockade, then a lot of food, a lot of medicine can get into the country. And then if you're, you know, the first thing you have to do is just stop the fighting or at least stop this part of the fighting, allow some food, allow some supplies back in and hopefully bring Yemen back up. But that's step one. And then you worry about step two and step three. And this blockade is enforced by the Saudi Navy? It's, so, there's... I mean, it seems, it's, I don't want to patronize the fine militaries <laughs> of the Gulf, but it seems like there must be a, a technical way to just cancel their blockade without waiting for pressure to work. So there's a couple of different, um, there's a lot of ships um, in the Red Sea. So the Emiratis have some ships out there. Um, what is required of merchant vessels or commercial vessels going into Yemen is basically they have to go through two inspection processes. So they're required to, Saudi Arabia requires them to dock in Saudi and be inspected because the Saudis are worried so there, I think there are two things going going on here when it comes to the comes to the blockade, which we can um, just sort of untangle for a moment. So the Saudis think that if they can sort of strangle economically the areas under Houthi control, that they can weaken the Houthis and bring them to their knees. I don't think that's a fair assumption, and I don't think we're seeing that play out. I think 
we're seeing uh, basically what it is we've already talked about, which is when you're when the Saudis are also bombing, people are willing are not going to rise up and revolt against the Houthis. They're going to be upset at the people bombing. Um, the other thing, the Saudis are very worried about Iranian missiles coming into Yemen, and the Saudis seem very convinced that many of these missiles are coming in through the port of Hudaydah. I don't think that's the case. I think the missiles, the ones that are coming into the country, are coming from a different route. But that's why the Saudis... Because they've been able to fire these missiles throughout the conflict. Right? Yeah, there, there hasn't been that many ballistic missiles that... I mean, the missile we're talking about is what the Iranians would call a Qiyam-1 um, and what the Houthis would call a Burkan-2. And these missiles have, the reason it's important is because these missiles fly about 300 kilometers longer than the Scud missiles, which the Yemeni military had in its, in its arsenal. And so these missiles, the fact that the Houthis can launch missiles that go 900, 950, 980 kilometers and can reach Riyadh, that's the change. And the Houthis are only able to do that because of these Iranian missiles. So that's, from the Saudi perspective, that, that's the, the key issue. So because the Saudis are worried about these two things, Can't missiles coming... Can put on an airplane, these missiles? Um, well, the Saudis have shut down airspace over, over Yemen, so the only there's no flights that are coming into Sana'a besides UN flights or, or relief flights and things like that, um, which is, well, we can, we can get into that later. But the Saudis require all commercial vessels to dock in Saudi to be inspected to see if they're bringing in missiles. No missiles have ever been found, obviously. The UN also runs something called UNVIM, which is the UN um, Verification Program, which also inspects the ships that are coming in. So when you're a commercial trader trying to get into Hudaydah, um, already your insurance is very high because you're going into a war zone. But then you have all of these different delays, and many ships are held in Saudi Arabia for a few weeks, several days, before they can get in. So there are all these problems in bringing material into Hudaydah. You, you touched there on, uh, and we've touched on it previously as well, the role of Iran, uh, and obviously in some ways that role has grown over time, uh, and they would have to be um, part of this discussion, mm -hmm. part of these uh, uh, negotiations in some form or fashion. Um, you know, what, this is a cheap way to project power. It's a cheap way for the Iranians to exact a price on their Saudi right. rivals, their Emirati rivals. Um, yeah, getting someone bogged down in a war with no yeah, end. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty uh, low-cost uh, um, engagement for them. Is there any sense at all that the Iranians uh, would want to be productive or you know, cooperative in a, in a kind of uh, situation in which there was a speeding up or intensification of efforts to get a, a peace process or negotiations off the ground? Yeah, so Iran has actually said, they, they told, again, when I was at the UN, they told our panel that they would like to p play what they called a positive role in the peace process. That is, they wanted a seat at the table. Um, the U.S. has not been very receptive to that. The U.S., which is a little ironic, if you think that Iran is the reason that your, that your allies are fighting the Houthis, but then you don't allow Iran into the into the room to discuss the peace negotiations, then um, you're you're in a bit of a difficult situation. But that's Iran actually has a a designated official that's there to work on the Yemen negotiations. Um, and Iran has said they wanted to play play a role. Obviously, it's in Iran's interest, of course, to be able to project power. And whether it's true or not, whether they can control or at least bring the Houthis to the table, you can understand why it would be in their best interest to at least give the impression that they can do that. That, look, 
we're strong enough that we can project power in these different regions, whether it's in Iraq or in Yemen with the Houthis. Um, but so far, the U.S. and the Saudis have been very reluctant and have not wanted to engage Iran directly on this. Uh, last question. Uh, these tragic pictures we see of these, these dying babies, uh, how much of that is the U.S.'s fault? The U.S. isn't directly responsible for them, but it is aiding and supporting those whom are responsible. And at this point, the U.S. knows they're responsible and it knows that things haven't changed. But the U.S. hasn't taken any steps. So you'd have to say that the U.S. is in some way, at some degree, at least complicit in those. Well, sadly, that's all the time we have. That's Greg, a really depressing note to end on. Well, is there a cheerful note you'd like to end us on instead? Not not when it comes to Yemen, unfortunately. Uh, well, Gregory, thanks uh, so much for your time. Uh, we've been talking to Gregory Johnson, uh, a Yemen expert who served on the UN panel from 2016 to 2018. And uh, you can read his writing about Yemen in many outlets, including Lawfare, New York Times, and I hope lots of other places. And you can also check out his book, The Last Refuge, uh, which is uh, a good starting place to untangling the mess that is Yemen. Uh, thanks for joining us on the TCF World Podcast. This is Thanasi Kambanis. Gregory, thanks. Thank you. Michael. Thanks. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.